0: Thanks for joining us today, Ed. Could you introduce yourself and give our listeners a brief overview of your journalism experience?
1: Sure. I started in journalism in the mid 1980s in college. I worked uh, for an alternative weekly uh, newspaper starting in uh, 1987, and I wrote about mental health, juvenile justice, and uh, wannabe mobsters. I worked a year at the Providence Journal Bulletin in Rhode Island, and then I left and wrote magazine stories, and then I ended up, uh, at another alt weekly covering City Hall in Hartford, Connecticut, where I got uh, into a scandal uh, at the Public Works Department. There were bribes—you know, bribes to the city manager and people like that—and we also uh, deposed the uh, high sheriff because of bribes, and we got the sheriff system abolished in Connecticut. I wrote about a real estate scammer named Mark Shapiro, uh, who was ripping off investors and banks and uh, turning pretty nice apartment complexes into slums, and he had me arrested. Uh, but he later got sentenced to something like 30 years in, uh, in prison for fraud. I worked in Florida for five years and uncovered the nonprofit companies that Jeb Bush used to get himself uh, into the governor's mansion. I dove into a local taxi monopolist, uh, a guy named Mears. Uh, I showed how a congressman named John Micah made a fortune in his cellular phone business uh, that he had helped write the regulations for. Uh, he, he basically won his own lottery. So I spent the past three decades plus digging into public and private companies, uh, both for-profit and non, examining uh, the regulations they influence in, in order to, uh, you know, cut out competition and make their owners rich. And I did a long series on the drug treatment industry in Baltimore. Uh, I found it enriched some of the sleaziest actors here. And, and that turns out to be true a lot in around the country, particularly with opioid uh, silver houses. And uh, I've been speaking to and reporting on opioid addicts for my entire career. I spent a lot of time with medical professionals, and psychologists, social workers,
0: people like that, as well as drug dealers. I'd love to hear that story about how you uh, got arrested.
1: So, Mark Shapiro, he went into business taking chunks of money from like dentists, like fifty thousand bucks here and there, and investing it in. In apartment complexes, you know, you'd have a, a, you know, two buildings with 50 units, something like that. Yeah. And you borrow money from the, uh, from the bank for that. And you basically run it. And it's just, you know, normal landlording is what it should be. But what he did, he, he would take the money. He would buy the buildings and then he would take the rents and he would take all the money out of the buildings and he wouldn't fix anything and he wouldn't pay the mortgages. So there was one complex that had three three fires of different units. And they were calling me saying, he's not fixing the units. And I walked across. Well, I basically came to the complex, and one of the tenants met me, and they said, you know, let me show you. And we walked into one of them. There was no doorknob in the door. It was a hole. She pushed huh. the door open. I walked into the thing, and my photographer came in to take a picture. Along came, you know, he was some kind of security guy. Oh, I got you. Got to get out of here. So we were like, "All right, man, we'll get out of here." You sure you don't want to talk to me? I know, oh, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on here. He was like, oh, no, no, no. So he gets, and so like a week later, I get a call from a from a cop. He says, "We have a warrant." <laughs> so they they busted me for trespassing. Yeah, because we crossed the threshold of this of this unit. Me, my photographer, and this lady who lived there, we all got busted for trespassing. And of course, he presses charges because by then I had been. I'd been asking him to talk to me and writing about him for a while. Yeah, so I ended up pleading, uh, uh, what do they call like nolo contendere, basically. And I think I, I, I don't think I even got probation. It was just one of those things where I got a, I got a little guilty plea. And of course, I have my fingerprints now in AFIS and all that stuff. So there's a picture of me getting a mugshot somewhere, and this was all in 19, like 92 or three. So okay, A long time ago. That's my, and that's my only criminal record. <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, I know you landed on the Kratom beat through a family tragedy, which you wrote about in your articles. Could you tell us about what happened?
1: My nephew James died from a Kratom overdose overnight between February 4th and February 5th, 2021. He had been trying to quit. He had had two grand mal seizures uh, before that incident um, that put him in the hospital. He went to the emergency room twice, uh I was at work in the courthouse when my sister rang my cell phone and told me he was dead. He was 21 years old.
0: What a shock. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. For the skeptics out there, were you able to objectively report on these issues even through this immense experience of grief? That's a whole philosophical conversation, I think, isn't it? Um, yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think anybody who believes Kratom is harmless. Um, will be moved by my story or james's story but i can say this many years ago my uncle died from complications after bariatric surgery and that prompted me to look into that industry i wrote a story about the pros and cons of uh bariatric surgery and my editors and all the subjects in that story i think thought it was pretty well balanced i I found my uncle's death was a result of some very specific medical errors by a specific surgeon and that the industry had some marginal players and that the incentives were skewed. There was a lot of money in it. There probably still is, but that on balance uh, it was a legitimate specialty and it helped the vast majority of those who who, who had gastric bypasses and things like that. And the story never mentioned my personal experience because it wasn't relevant to that piece. Now, I had never heard of kratom until the phone call from my sister. Yeah, most of the popular press reporting that I read about kratom then, in, in Rolling Stone and in Vice and you know places like that, they framed the kratom story as a drug war overreach. And you know the DEA moved to schedule it, and the industry and many of the users rallied and stopped them, which was a remarkable thing that I don't think ever happened before. And nobody had at that time in in journalism, nobody had looked at the big Kratom vendors or the American Kratom Association, which uh, at the time was claiming there had never been a death attributable to Kratom. And I was able very quickly to locate about a half a dozen wrongful death lawsuits stemming from Kratom and Kratom alone. I mean, I, I threw out the ones that had polydrug. So I had those in hand. And, and reports from kratom only overdoses from medical examiners where they put them in a gra- you know a grid. you wouldn't have the name of the person, and so I couldn't contact them, but it would be a, a a data point. And when I looked at what AKA was saying and compared it to the evidence I was able to gather, including James autopsy, James's autopsy and toxicology reports, um, I saw problems.
0: you're right it's for the, the kratom proponents. No matter how balanced and nuanced we are, we'll, we'll just be called kratom haters, you know? So you can't,
1: you can't say I'm unbiased, but I don't want you to think I'm, I'm trying to be fair. I want to give everybody their chance to make their best argument. And I did.
0: And I, I think it was reflected in your article. So could you summarize your reporting, what you found in general about kratom and dependency and addiction? So by user testimony,
1: it, it appears that it kratom is fairly habit-forming. You know, I, I think you're probably more knowledgeable about this than I am. But I think it's important to note, and I think you've done this as well. It's important to note that that even the most evil addictive stuff, right, meth, heroin, it doesn't addict even most people who try it, right? Yes. We've almost all taken a couple of Vicodins, right, when if we get our wisdom teeth pulled or something like that. Most people who ever used Oxy's, uh, you know, didn't get hooked. So it's always a subset, a minority of users who have, uh, problems. And those problems also lie in a continuum. And some people, you know, would like to cut back and, and they can. And some people would like to cut back and they're having a harder time with it, right? All the way up to the people who are in the deep end, the real deep end. So I found a Reddit forum. You've known this too, uh, are quitting, uh, folks who a significant number were in way over their heads. And I spoke with sober house counselors and people who used Kratom and quit. And uh I called a guy who made a movie, A Leaf of Faith, and even he told me he wished he had put a little more in the movie about Kratom's addictive potential. And I spoke to a number of people who had no problem at all with Kratom and and, and or said they had no problem. Some of them were keen to, to, to parse the word addiction. Um they wanted You know, to to, as a clinical term, you know, they would say, you know, just because I need it and can't stop using it doesn't mean I'm addicted, which you know, fair. But in their tone, and some of these folks, not everyone, some of the people are perfectly fine with it, but some of them, I heard echoes uh, of the 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 drug people I've been talking to in coffee shops and diners for 30 years, that that itchy desperation, so. You get a feel for this, I, you know. I have people in my family who've had problems with various substances. We all have, I think, right. And you know, if you're if you're paying attention, you get a sense of that. So, I I got that sense that
0: addiction is a thing with this, right? You're right about the equivocation is often around the, the use of the word dependency versus addiction, right? And the academics actually use the word dependency because for a good reason, calling somebody an addict in that kind of language can be stigmatizing. So sure. sure a lot of, a lot of the academic literature, uh, you know, m- they might use substance use disorder. Yes. On the other end, that plays into sort of the, the marketing of it and the insistence that it's just a dependency. And then people that don't have consequences are nor, they want to just normalize it. You know, they wince at the word addiction because they're just drinking a little cup of tea, you know, in the morning. So.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And, and if you're doing that, it should be fine. I mean, they're still dangerous because you, you the, the supply chain is so, is so strange, but right. Uh, and, and I have a lot of sympathy for people with substance use disorders. It, it's, it's a little bit in my experience. It's a little bit like using like the word Latinx when you talk to people who, who are You know, native Spanish speakers and stuff, they tend not to use terms like that. And when I talk to people who are in recovery for substance use disorder, they tend not to say substance use
0: disorder. I'm an addict.
1: So that's both ways. As a reporter, I was always, it was drummed into me. Don't use euphemism. Don't use euphemism because it weakens everything you're trying to say. So there's a real, there's a real tension there. Uh, between the, 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 clinicians and the people like me who I'm not a clinician
0: and I'm trying to make, I'm trying to be clear about what's happening. That clarity is we, we want to embrace because we feel like there's this minimization, especially when we're struggling. So in your reporting, you identified this big gap in the published science in which studies funded or sponsored by the American Creative Association often showed a more rosy picture in terms of addiction, whereas other researchers with no affiliation with the AKA identified more concerning findings about the abuse potential, could you uh, explain that? Okay, sponsored may not always
1: be the best word. Um In okay. some cases, and in some cases it is, but the AKA hired a patent lawyer named Jane Babin to debunk the FDA's initial report of kratom-related fatalities, and, and which turned out to be flawed. The, the FDA's report. You, you've talked about this before, I think, on the past. Uh, they also brought in Jack Henningfield, uh, who I'm told is a big shot in addiction research, and he's now with an outfit called uh, Penny Associates, which also works for the nicotine industry. Um, so he and his colleagues did some things I think are questionable. You know, underplaying kratom's uh, addictive potential, comparing it to coffee. Uh, citing uh, at some point somebody cited a letter to the editor of a medical journal as if it were re- uh, research uh, it's clear that whatever expertise Henningfield has in the scientific field he's using that skill uh, to tip the scales uh, and he's paid to do that that's what his job is now what I was doing I was trying to assess what aka was putting on its website and what Mac out, uh who's the main lobbies for aka he was sending me and seeing where it fits uh, in the larger world of kratom research I wasn't surprised to see AKA's uh, stuff was more favorable than some of the other studies.
0: Another issue in your articles, the research uh, relies on user surveys. And so even if they're not directly funded by the industry, the audience for some of these questionnaires directly targeted AKA members or other pro-creative individuals. And surveys are already kind of considered to have a bias because people with positive experiences... Are more likely to complete them. Similarly, you know, case reports, over-report uh, negative experiences. What did your reporting show about this?
1: Yeah, I was surprised to see the AKA signing research based on surveys of Kratom users that AKA basically supplied. Uh, um, and like you say, it, it seems like a subset of Kratom users that might be not be, that's a subset of Kratom users that might not be representative. Of all kratom users, particularly during that time, just after uh, the organization had beat back the DEA, um, so the researchers who did those studies admitted, at least one of them did, that they might have some bias. And I, I don't consider them to be AKA or industry sponsored, uh, just influenced.
0: Yeah, and one of those researchers, I'm going to, ha- I have a quote for of him in one of your articles that really struck me. is Oliver Grudman, who. Quote, he said, quote, Kratom taken responsibly, and if it's a good product, taken in relatively low amounts after consultation with health professionals is probably fine. My commentary on that is the whole nature of substance abuse is the addict loses control, takes more and more, likely and sometimes in an irresponsible manner. Um, Any final reactions to that quote and just about the subject of addiction in general?
1: That's an interesting uh Point about his his quote an interesting perspective on it, which I didn't. It didn't occur to me when I heard him say it. And I, I like Grundman. I think he's an honest researcher, and I think he's just laser focused on what he's doing. And I think he took it for granted that addiction potential was low, because Henningfield said so, and he revered Henningfield. We know what we know about everything because of guys like him who focus very specifically on a very small piece of the big picture. And so somebody like me or you who is not laser focused on that one small thing and we see the bigger picture, we can easily see that he's very carefully not looking at things we can see, right? But we, we also can't see what he sees, right? He's looking at particular things about a molecule that may unlock fantastic benefits for all of us later. And I think they all do it this way. You know, it's, uh, it's just they have to
0: not think about all this other stuff because they're, they're focused. That, that is important. There are promising studies of benefits that could come yeah. from this plant. One thing I find in the, the discourse about Kratom is the conversation seems to be frozen in time back to that period when the DEA and the FDA were going to schedule it. Hmm. And like you pointed out, the FDA, they're reporting on the fatalities and and some of their claims was really flawed. The conversation seems stuck in 2017. And now it's six, seven years later, and we have a lot more information. H- have you noticed that?
1: Let's be real clear. I am not really in the world of, of Kratom research or even Kratom journalism so much. I mean, I, you know, the stories we're talking about, I wrote on, you know, two years ago.
0: You know, yeah. Years,
1: two years ago, whatever it's been. So, but right. At that time, people were citing this Babbin study as, oh, we debunked everything the FDA had to say. And, uh, yeah, the, it, it, it did feel like that.
0: And it, it seems like it still might be something like that. Yeah. Two years later, there, there, it's the same arguments about why it's safe. You know? Sure. Your first article was entitled, Can Kratom Kill? There's a firmly held belief by the majority of Kratom proponents that it is an impossibility for Kratom alone to cause the death of I shared a study with you earlier about Florida. Based on your previous reporting, what is your reaction to that new academic article that just came out this year? I reached out to
1: one of the lead authors on that. And he did, he basically said, read the study. So I did, because all I had seen is the abstract. And I feel like I need to follow up on that. You know, 21 kratom only deaths is in line with the total number I had found nationwide, uh, looking, uh, since 2016. So if there's that many just in Florida in two years, then either I have radically undercounted them. Or the death rate from kratom is increasing very quickly and substantially or both. And it says what it says. Uh, I, it, it's, it's a lot of kratom deaths and a lot of kratom only deaths or deaths that were attributed that there's nothing else in their system that could have possibly killed them. I think that's significant.
0: The scientific literature has suggested ranges for the amounts of kratom that can be found in postmortem toxology reports that may be indicators of lethality. Your nephew's blood kratom level was 2200 NGML. Talking about nanograms per milliliter, which is a tiny amount of stuff in your blood. You reached out to a professor of pharmacology and he did some calculations and he said, quote, to reach those high blood levels, the doses of kratom had to be at least 40 to 80 grams of leaf material consumed in a very short time. Maybe an hour at most. I'm trying to figure out how much of a leaf material you took. Kratom proponents will point to studies in mice that indicate even kratom consumption 40 times the average dose cannot kill a mouse. Can you help us make any sense of this conflicting information? Yeah, I wish I could make more sense of it. And Walt, uh, Prozlak,
1: again, I think is an honest broker and a real researcher because he did some real interesting work about kratom being, uh, you know, kind of dirty coming in with, with heavy metals and things like that. He's a person who uses it and, and thinks it, it's helping it. Anyway, I think he's, he's a good researcher. The best answer I have in terms of what he was trying to do is that estimating amounts of kratom ingested from blood concentration levels found post mortem is a very dicey business. So Walter didn't know how to do that very accurately when I spoke to him. Uh, and I think he probably still can't. And I don't think maybe nobody can. And 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 for that, because, you know, if you think about it, to get a baseline in order to be able to do this accurately, you would have to measure the amount of kratom products that a person ingested before it killed them, and then check their blood levels afterwards, and then do that a bunch of different times with different people, because the human body is variable. So I saw another example where Grundman had been called as an expert witness in one of the uh, other wrongful death cases, and uh, he tried to estimate the amount ingested and his in that case, and his numbers were crazy massive amounts, all right? But then he rescinded that later after recalculating and reconsidering, and I have a couple of court documents on that. So it's just one of those things that you can't really do very well yet, and that maybe over time they'll be get, begin to be able to do it better.
0: When I was looking at it a year or two ago, they couldn't. Yeah, th- this is a little bit above my um, technological and scientific background, and so it's a little complicated. I have seen a big ranges from 40 to 80 grams from what this professor said to 40 times that amount, you know. Yeah, I think Grundman's
1: was, was something like that. You know, they were talking about, you know, Fifty-gallon drum is full of this
0: stuff, and it was just because they just they don't have a good method to do this yet. Uh, and obviously, they're not going to be testing this in humans uh, in terms of the right. lethal dose. Right, and you
1: can't do an LD fifty on people. That, that wouldn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's other factors like your weight or your BMI, for example, that.
1: Right, and your metabolism and everything else. People are different. You know, we we metabolize alcohol differently. We metabolize opioids differently. Cocaine, all
0: of it. One tactic of the industry or proponents is like, since we don't know what it is, it's an impossibility Hmm. for kratom alone to to be lethal. I know one aspect of the debate is the involvement of the Pennsylvania-based NMS Labs. The lethal doses ranges I cited earlier, published literature comes from at least one author affiliated with. NMS. Could you provide some background about this lab? So that, I, I think
1: that lab created the tests that coroners use to find metragenine in the blood of corpses, or they do that testing and they're one of only a couple that does that testing. So they spent a lot of time and effort working out how quickly the substance dissipates uh, and offered guidance to the medical examiners on
0: that. And another claim by the Kratom uh Advocates is that medical examiners are getting this all wrong. They are interpreting the correlation of kratom in a body as causation of the death. That is the MEs are doing this. And at worst, they're literally lying about kratom causing the fatalities because of the FDA or other conspiracies. What should we think about these claims? The American kratom
1: association and, or, or maybe it was just Mac Haddow, uh, who when I wrote was essentially running, aka. Decided that the lab was a key nexus in a conspiracy between federal agencies and local coroners to disparage his product. And the NMS people are at best, uh, as far as I can tell, bemused by this. Um, I have asked Mac many times for his evidence that the FDA or the DEA are unduly influencing local medical examiners, and he's just refused to divulge any. Uh, you know, he did a public information act request to the FDA for this stuff. And I don't know what became of it. He just won't tell me about it. And he'd been very open with all the other information. you yeah, know, pretty open. So I think it's fair. Uh, to be fair to AKA, it's worth noting that medical examiners are not omniscient, and they make mistakes all the time. Uh, there's a scandal right now nationwide regarding how often they find people who died in police custody uh, were actively or deliberately killed. You know, it, it's not like there's no you can't just take an ME report and always say, well, that, that, that can't be challenged. Uh, you know, when you drill it down into any death, uh, you end up with some squishy stuff and some philosophical questions. On the other hand, when a medical examiner says somebody died from, say, alcohol poisoning, you don't see Anthouser Bush's PR team attacking the institution of cause of death investigators.
0: That's our routine system of. Assigning causation to death is through the medical examiner coroner system
1: yeah yeah somebody dies from a from a stroke there's a there's a physical marker for that you can see in their brain where this blood clot was right you can see and so this you know somebody dies from a gunshot wound or something like that it's pretty clear this guy wasn't going to die except somebody shot him. some of them are very easy open and shut they got electrocuted or something like that we know that kills people now, not everybody who gets shocked with, you know, 20,000 volts at, you know, particular amperage dies of these kratom deaths. I think it's probable that they're being very careful about it, All right, It takes a lot of this stuff to kill you. We don't know the mechanism exactly. My nephew died. He choked to death on vomit. And Jane Babin then said, well, that's not really a kratom death. Well, Yes, it kind of is. I think I, I would disagree with that. He, he was, he was zonked out. He couldn't wake up and turn his head and he died. That's a kratom death. So we can argue about it forever. You know, maybe some people will never, never be convinced, but I think if a substance makes that happen to you, that you can, you can lay it at, at its feet.
0: I mean, the similar is when somebody has a seizure and then maybe drowns in a hot tub or, and Even a larger debate. I mean, we're not going to talk about here is that even the polydrug substance abuse intoxications, where there's a death with the person had kratom in their system, and they most often it's fentanyl. In addition, that should be concerning too. It should Uh, be if this is stuff that's supposed to
1: get you off of fentanyl.
0: Exactly. So, and I have found nothing in the scientific literature that says this set of characteristics in a person X, Y, and Z. These people can benefit from Kratom and it will be an antidote and a harm, a effective harm reducer versus another set of addicts. They have these types of characteristics and Kratom will perpetuate and be part of their ongoing right. addiction cycle.
1: That's yeah. the nature of addiction medicine too. It's, it's a, it's a very complicated field and people are so different and people react so differently to different treatments. You know, some people cognitive behavior role therapy is 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 you know the keys to the kingdom other people they have no effect on it uh, so and kind of may in turn, at some point become an addiction medicine you know I think there's a real yeah. good possibility that could happen
0: well this leads up to my next question you identified a common pattern a playbook if you will and I will quote from your writing and love your reaction quote if the FDA says a person died from Kratom The Kratom industry and its proponents claim they were a poly drug addict who died from something else. When the medical examiners conclude someone died from Kratom, they attack the medical examiner. When a reporter writes about a Kratom overdose, they call it fake news. And if a mother joins a bereavement group, they will call her a liar, unquote. All of us in the quitting community have had the same experience where we'll be bullied and harassed, and, you know, told that Kratom isn't addictive, and it, it, was, it was user error on our part. And that's the
1: dynamic that made me put James in the story. You got to understand, when I started researching, I thought, ah, here are six, you know, seven deaths from Kratom alone. I will present these to the AKA, and we'll have a deep and nuanced conversation about harm reduction and relative risks and regulatory frameworks. But what happened instead was gaslighting. My sister got attacked by Kratom fans on a mother's bereavement message board it was only a small part of it. When Haddo and Babin took essentially the same line as, you know, these these sort of random people online, I had to shift my understanding of the industry. I was not, I was not expecting that. I was expecting a professional conversation, just as I had with, again, the people who were doing bariatric surgery back in, in the early 2000s, where I would say, well, you know, here, here are some deaths. What are the percentages? Here's my uncle at this case. And they'd say, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We know or, you know, this, this, this can happen. You know, here are the steps we take to prevent it. And here's where things go a little sideways and, 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 you know, here are weaknesses in the way it wasn't like that at all. It was just like flat out. Oh no, no, that never happened. That can't happen. Well, what what can you do with that?
0: Yes, it, it's very interesting. It's this. I I'm glad to hear. It looks like both of us might have the same naivety because I when I started this podcast, I had the same expectation. I, I thought it was just a big misunderstanding, right? But, and the industry just wasn't paying attention, or uh-oh. and the reaction was exactly like. That's impossible. People don't get addicted to kratom, you know, and if you do, it's only extracts or it's probably because you're buying gas station stuff that has other things in it. Or their favorite one is you're, you're not really, you're just saying kratom, you're addicted to kratom. So your family doesn't, it's more socially acceptable because it's legal. You don't want to tell your family you're back on heroin. Oh yeah. This is interesting. One thing that you found in your reporting that you actually looked at a researcher that studied the media coverage about Kratom and in his analysis that there wasn't actually a negative media coverage. There wasn't like a systematic bias about Kratom. Uh, Could you tell us about that? Yeah, the framework that
1: journalists place around a lot of reporting on regulation of drugs is one of moral panic, right? So, you know, and I've done this many times myself. Uh, You get a press release from a guy in New Jersey saying the Smurfs are satanic really happened that by the way and so you can go <laughs> and make fun of that you know reefer madness was a thing we all know that now that cannabis for most people is not a terrible threat so i wondered if anybody had done any real analysis of media reports about kratom and i found one and you know surprise it said that, that study showed the reporting on kratom was overall pretty well balanced no moral panic um now of course that's one study and the way the media uh, the overall news media has changed recently in this country. It's hard to put much stock in anyone's study reporting, you know, on, on any subject. Uh, many, so many media consumers are, are getting most of their news from just one or two sources. And so if there's a lot of balanced or different reporting in other sources, they won't see it. So I think a lot of people in the Kratom world, it, you know, if they're watching TV news and just looking at that, you're going to see these cases of a death and and, it, and it's, and it's a little bit, uh, it, it, it can be a little bit moral panicky, but where if you're just reading, you know, the glossy magazine stories, which are written by other kinds of people, you know, it's, it's almost all, no, this stuff is very safe and it's fine. And unless you start reading, seeing the whole, the whole array, the whole gamut. Yeah, and again, right. nobody was reporting on, on what the AKA is. Nobody was drilling down and reading their tax forms or anything like that. I'm the only person who had done that.
0: Yeah, that's the only reporting that I can find. So, and part of that, you examined the original founders of the American Credit Association and that they were pushed out. What was the story behind I, that? I, I was months into my reporting about American Credit
1: Association when I learned that Susan Ash existed, which is astonishing to me because she, of course, was the spokesperson and the person in, you know, Doing the stories back in 20, what, 2016 or so when they were doing, they had the big fight against the, uh, the FDA and the DEA. So I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't know she existed for several months. And then I, uh, uh, and, and, you know, she's just, she's this lady, this, this lady with Lyme disease who used Kratom for pain relief and started a grassroots outfit and got, you know, to try to keep Kratom legal. And so I reached out to her and it was a, it was a long time before I was able to get to her, I found this ugly thing where the AKA put out a press release after she was ousted. And I think Payne News Network or some outfit like that had it a story about this. The release basically accused her of embezzling. <laughs> and so she was really hurt by that. And it was hard to get her to talk about it. Um, but best I could piece together, Susan Ash founded and ran AKA and uh, had a small board. And then they hired Mac Haddo to professionalize the operation and really kick it into gear when they were under threat. And Haddo stacked the, he stacked the board with his cronies and then pushed Ash out. And one interesting thing I found is that Haddo had done a similar thing, uh, many years, like 30 years ago with a small nonprofit called the T Bear Foundation. And then he ended up getting sideways with ethics, uh, investigators in the federal government over that. He, he had ended up like sort of kind of funneling some money to his wife and he ended mm-hmm. up, uh, uh, pleading guilty to crimes and, uh, and, and going to jail, going to prison for that.
0: So Kratom Science Podcast did an interview of Susan Ash, if you're interested, in addition to your article. I don't think you can talk about
1: Kratom, the Kratom industry and Kratom regulation without talking about Mac Hattop.
0: Some of the pro-Kratom people are just anti-prohibitionists. So they it's like for all drugs should be legal and, you know.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You take an ideological stance and decide that you're going to sort of base all your thinking around that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It simplifies Um, things. The
1: moral imperative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I've, it's like a horseshoe. The other end who think all drugs are all bad. Both of them have very black and white thinking. It makes life simple not to have to deal with all these nuances, but it's um, hard to
1: make policy based on that, that actually works. Yes. Both sides. And, And it's a, it's a big anti government freedom kind of thing and supplements industry is like that like you know Alex Jones is is a big supplement guy i i i found that to be fascinating and i'd like to write and 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 learn more about it.
0: what how would you compare the aka to other lobbying operations you know every industry works really hard and spends a lot of money to protect their interests you know with great government.
1: question and and i don't study lobbying organizations a lot so i can't really make a an informed, I don't have an, a really informed opinion on that. There's a guy named Turner uh, who was also uh, a creative advocate who I spoke with a lot. And and uh, his criticism of my piece is that well, AKA is sort of normal, and he may know more about about that than me. This seems very sleazy to me. Um, I'm a
0: little bit more realistic about this sort of thing. Drew, his name's Drew. I yeah, know, Drew, Drew Turner, good guy. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And one of the things in your reporting, you found that they, aka, asked their through their protectors program, I think it's called, to like sort of ask their advocates to be in in public and on social media to be present a neutral front about their politics.
1: Yeah, and and. I'm sure it's a difficult thing to try to keep everybody in line because, you know, Mac's a pro. He really is good at what he does. And he understands that when people get on online and start harassing people and being real
0: nasty, that it doesn't help the cause. I think he's might be one of the, for being a small operations, he might be one of the most effective lobbyists out there. I'm, I'm, it's remarkable.
1: Um, everybody agrees that the guy is pretty good at what he does. He's also tireless. Now, you've got to respect him.
0: I wondered if he's a true, if he really believes in Kratom.
1: <laughs> Mac has said he used it and he has used it. So I'll take him at his word. Yeah. It, 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 it's so, it's so ironic. I mean, Mac is a, Mac is a serious Mormon and a lot of the people involved in, in the AKA are also uh, Mormons and the Mormon is, the Mormonism is incredibly anti drug. I, I believe you, you're not supposed to drink coffee
0: if you're a Mormon. There's an irony there. You mentioned this earlier in our discussion about Chris Bell, the filmmaker behind the movie Leaf of Faith, yeah. which many people cite as a, sort of their entree and into Kratom, you know, especially for those who use it for pain relief and self-medicating. But he went on the record and said his perspective changed. And you, you referenced that earlier. What, what, what was that? Yeah. Could you go more into that?
1: Leaf, leaf of Faith. I, I actually rented that movie. It was one of the first things I did after James died, and I decided to uh, to research Kratom. I, I rented the movie and watched it, and I was impressed by it, by the film. And so I wrote Chris Bell, Bell's name down on my notebook and said, I got to try to reach out to this guy. And you know, I started trying to get to him. It was months before I was able to do that. He's a remarkable guy, right? He's a power lifter, documentary filmmaker, uses himself as his own subject, and, and he's a real addict and, and a seeker. Um, and he makes no bones about this. I'm not giving anything away. Uh, and so he told me he no longer used Kratom because he got into Ibogaine. Uh, there was a video online of him supposedly taking Ibogaine and tripping balls. Um, and that was a couple of years ago. So he may be onto something new by now. I mentioned before he would have, he, he said, and I don't have it exact, but paraphrasing, he said he would put a, a couple of minutes in, in the film talking about the addictive potential of Kratom. And he's also interesting in a way because from what I could discern the kratom subculture the people who use it tend to be of three types. Uh there's gym rats, people who use it as a performance enhancing thing so they can work out longer. There are people taking it for pain management who have chronic pain and then there are people who uh, are trying to get off uh drugs opioids mainly. Chris is all three of those things.
0: That is interesting. of an
1: avatar of the kratom of the kratom market yeah, I'd like to check in with him again. He seems like a real uh, interesting cat. I think he means well in all ways, and he's just kind of learning. He's he's on his journey, and he's taking everybody with him because he's got a camera on himself all the time. <laughs> so, and he's and he's fearless.
0: I need to watch that <laughs> that film, but yeah. I, and I need to learn a little bit more about him as but, a, um, as,
1: as a person who had been a addict, You'll you'll see some real issues with that film too.
0: Okay, I did as well. I mean, just the title itself leaf of faith, I feel like some of the proponents they they have I feel like this irrational exuberance for Kratom that seems to be based in faith rather than rationality, you know? There's this evangelicism to
1: I had a conversation uh, well, a, a, an exchange of views with Henningfield about just that. The evangelism for Kratom uh, struck me in in my reporting as very similar to the evangelism I would uh, encounter for people in recovery from opioid addiction so there was this pattern and over years of course you'd talk to same people uh you know with their problems and they would have they'd, they'd go into one treatment center and you'd see them and they'd say oh everyone I wasn't before was no good you know these guys were crooks these guys were lousy this is the one you know this is this is the best and then you see him uh, you know 2 years later and they'd be like bad mouth the one they had that had been their savior and this new one is the best you know that sort of thing and I, and I felt like that was a pattern I saw over and over again that is almost integral to uh, addiction addiction behavior so I asked Hennefield about that and he and his response was like oh yeah <laughs> that's it. And, and so, right. People who have addictive or addiction personalities have to think about one more thing you have to think about is that your brain works that way.
0: I I can relate to that. The the, sort of the worship of Kratom is, is weird, you know, but I see, I like 12 steps and I find it effective, but I, I know 12 step evangelicals who preach it sort of as the only way to go Right, and and some of the reasons the same. Like, if the twelve steps don't work for you, it means you didn't yeah. do it right. There's
1: something wrong with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a reverse mirror of the same kind of thinking, and like, especially with addiction, maybe all things in life, it's a really complicated problem of nature and nurture and genetics and upbringing interaction with the substance. This is a follow-up question from your earlier you did some reporting on the opiate industry and then the the rehab industry I guess um and it was it in Connecticut
1: my big uh, opioid stories were in Maryland or in Baltimore
0: could you talk about that
1: well yeah just basically you know Baltimore has a lot of uh heroin addicts and we have a very large industry uh that caters to addiction recovery I wanted to take a, a, a careful look at, at how effective that was. This is about 10, 15 years ago now, about 10 years ago, I guess. And what I found along with a lot of very well-meaning people who were doing everything they could to help people get free, I found a lot of profiteers. Uh, much of it was, uh, involving housing. What you, what you could do is kind of put people in slums. And we all seen these recovery houses where you got 10, People living in uh, a three bedroom row house bunked up. You know, if if you're getting a hundred or 200 bucks a week from each one of those, these are houses that you maybe bought for 15,000 bucks or something like that. In, in, In Baltimore, it's an amazing sort of thing. Not a lot of real services. Um, there's ways to get the government to pay. And, uh, it was a kind of a shadow world, uh, of, uh, you know, when I started looking at the land records, uh, I started finding some real shady stuff. And, uh, so I reported about that. You know, that was and, one of the, one of the things.
0: And it's largely unregulated.
1: It was like entirely unregulated. It kind of fell between the cracks. Um, and, and mostly that because, um, you cannot do a zoning law against rooming houses. There used to be laws They were sort of morally based Christian laws about like, well, unrelated people can't live under the same roof because that would be sin. And that's all been overthrown, and rightly really so, I think. You know, I look myself in a in a in a house with uh, you know three other housemates when I was uh when I was a younger reporter because I couldn't afford to you know have a place of my own, get paid enough. It's perfectly reasonable, and you know it should be allowed, but it, it's also subject to abuse, particularly when you have vulnerable people. So they do it in homeless services, they do it in addiction services, and often they those two things overlap. York Times did the same thing down in Florida. The same story. It's the same story everywhere. It's you should get yeah. a bunch of people into a house, and they don't expect much, and they're at their lowest. And you can get and you can get money for this. You know, they don't have to make the hundred bucks a week. They can find a way to to steer you steer it. You know. Yeah.
0: And the and interesting it, thing about Florida, it kind of overlaps with the subject of our podcast, is the, the the there's a kratom bar industry down there, and. Um, yeah it overlaps with those housing those halfway houses and you know some of them test for kratom some of them don't and mm-hmm. uh, it makes it even more complicated for those trying to uh, get out of their addiction so a couple more questions here um one of your last articles in your series last year and was the law and the profits to so look at Kratom's political underbelly yeah and you got do- you documented the big money uh, that goes into kratom lobbying and I, I want to urge listeners, I'm going to link all the, um, pieces and, but this one was complicated and long. So, but could you give a, us an overview of what you yeah, found?
1: That, that piece was too long. I think I wish I could have made it shorter. So yeah, the bottom line to, to, to boil it down. The bottom line is Mac Hatta was taking a lot of money. He, they ousted Ash and they claimed she couldn't account for like, you know, 20,000 bucks or something like that. Mac, according to the AKA's tax forms was taking almost $200,000 a year out of that outfit. And and late in my reporting, I then found a second nonprofit corporation called the Center for Plant Science. So same people, no website, hardly anybody knew about it. And Mac was taking even more money uh, as a consultant from that, another $173,000 in one year. So he had a friend on the staff, Peter Candlin. He paid six figures. They paid Penny Associates uh, six figures. They were paying Hogan Lovells, you know, these various other uh, law firms and consult and consulting firms and lobbyists, uh, they paid a state senator in Utah, Curtis Bramble, $374,000, $374,500, starting just a few months after Bramble introduced the AKA's model legislation, the Creative Consumer Protection Act and Utah State Legislature. And they passed that law there. And all of a sudden, this guy then gets paid $374,000 as,
0: a, you know, like a,
1: an international business consultant.
0: Yeah, Um Senator Bramble just last, or two weeks ago, appeared before the Ohio Senate behalf of a, a bill that- A bill, probably. Yeah, the AKA's model legislation, and he talked about his U- Utah experience and how many people have consulting businesses, but he's a paid advocate for Kratom. I found his, uh, his testimony objectionable when he, com- he compared Kratom use to, uh, a Diet Coke dependency, mm-hmm. which I think is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. So, um, question to that piece. You found that Makato was playing both sides.
1: No, no, no. What he did, it, 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 no, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, he's a, he's a lobbyist consultant. He works for a lot of different people. Okay. Uh, he ended up, so. Dan Fabricant was one of the other people I spoke to for this, and he had been head of, uh, I think he was head of FDA for a while, and he was one of the people who put Kratom on a, a list of sort of substances you can't import to the United States. Fabricant, of course, left the government uh, in the normal revolving door situation. He is now the head of uh, the biggest lobbying group for uh Supplements, a supplement industry, and he has hired Mac Haddow to work for him on that. So Kratom isn't really a supplement, but it kind of is. It's, it's a, it's in a strange nether world. It should be regulated as a drug, right? Haddam consists, it's a food, you know, and there therein is, is lies the mischief.
0: The FDA import ban. Could you explain that? And I've had listeners ask me about that because they've I'm heard about try. This.
1: the import ban. It's not really, it's not totally a ban. So the FDA put Kratom on an import alert back in 20, I don't know, 2012 or 13, something like that. And it's a directive to the customs inspectors to seize any Kratom being imported by a long list of companies that the FDA has already determined are or had been selling Kratom for human consumption. By making false illegal claims about its benefits. Okay. So FDA says you're saying Kratom is an elixir and it'll make your dick hard or whatever. We're going to put you on this list as a corporation and it's Ed's Kratom vendors. All right. And the list is list is just a scroll of names. It's hundreds of different corporate names. And you're telling every customs inspector across this land that if they see a bill of lading, an invoice that has Ed's kratom vendors listed on it, and it says kratom on the box, that you you take that box off the shelf. The alert also directs inspectors to sideline kratom ship by other companies um, and tell the FDA so that they can determine if that company is making false claims and should be on And so this is completely unworkable in, in real life, right? Because there's all this stuff coming in all the time. There's all these customs people and they have to get their job done quickly and they cannot consult a list of a thousand corporate names every time they do it. All right. Cause these corporate names only, they pop in and out of existence, right? Like, like muons, right? They, they they're only existing for a year, or two years and then they go away and the, the same people invent another company. So that's why the FDA is just a few shipments a year at most.
0: So it gives them a little bit of flexibility to, um crack down with some discretionary actions. But it's right. obviously... They have to think about
1: it. And again, Customs is looking for what? Atomic fucking bombs, right? Yeah. They're looking for heroin. They're looking for fentanyl. They're looking for all this other stuff that is considered a higher priority. And I think rightly so. So they really can't spend a lot of time on this, and it also creates another loophole. Like if your company is bringing kratom in for some other purpose, like you know, not for human consumption, which nobody does, but you could do that. You know, that's yeah, and, legal.
0: And at times, the packages are labeled when you buy it, it not for human consumption, which is right. And, right. and this so leads up to there's
1: all this rigmarole and, and and investigation that FDA people or or customs people have to do in order to seize it. Which is why, and again, you've got to assume it's properly labeled, or else yeah. you got to sniff it out, which is hard. So you know, it, it's it it becomes easy to create k- them into the war into the country and easy to sell it.
0: Well, this leads to the next question. It, it, it sounds like the FDA at some levels asleep at the wheel here. Uh, what what could they do better, and what are their constraints with existing laws? And- so
1: they, they they under under the existing law. FDA has to prove the stuff is harmful before they can ban it, right? And that's what the Shea, the, the, the Dietary Supplement the Health and Education Act that Mac Haddow essentially helped write, that's what it does. It, it, it makes the burden of proof go on to the FDA instead of the person who's, who's selling stuff for your consumption in the United States. And they thought they had done this in 2016, right? The FDA said to the DEA, hey, this stuff, hmm. Go ahead and put it on the schedule. And DA is like, okay, boss. And then they got walloped. So FDA wants it regulated as a drug. The industry says, no, it's a food. And I think the strongest case the FDA has is to enforce the import ban. Um, which we just talked about is, is, is practically very difficult to do. So I don't think the agency is asleep, though. I mean, if you look at their brief, right, they're they're charged with regulating an enormous portion of the U.S. economy, everything, all food, all drugs, any supplements, all the pseudo drugs. So in that context, kratom is is a small, a small issue. It's a subculture within a subculture, and because of the way the laws are written, because Deshay says. It's on the FDA to prove it's, it's unsafe. And then even after they do that, they still,
0: they still get Congress basically saying no back off. They're kind of hobbled. Did you find any evidence of a conspiracy and that the FDA has some kind of vendetta or is it more? It's a bureaucracy and then they got bigger fish to fry.
1: Well, the FDA really wouldn't talk to me about this stuff. Okay. Right? I thought that was interesting because in the past, if I've called them on something I have, you know their spokespeople have gotten on the phone pretty quickly and discussed the issues so i do think that they're just harried i think it's i think it's much more that they're particularly in the last few years right during during covid there's a lot of work to be done in that agency so i'm trying to i'm i'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt i don't think there's any conspiracy of anything i think it's just a matter of you have one one time many years ago i did a story about the the local uh, animal shelter and 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 how many you know dogs or and cats are being abandoned in baltimore and how un- underfunded it is and the guy in charge of the thing he said to me i'm going to hold up a puppy in one hand and a baby in the other which one should get the
0: my concern because you can only pick one yeah I, I think it's a bit like that what would it take uh, for example to regulate kratom like cannabis where it was where it would be legal but it would be um, dispensed through like local place-based uh, locations that were licensed and inspected. And there was,
1: I mean, if you think the cannabis regulation system is good, I mean, I guess have at it. Um, I mean, what would it take? It would take state laws that would say there, here's how we're going to do it. Right. And right. And And in the case of cannabis, what they're saying is here's how we're going to do it. And these guys get licenses and these guys over here don't. And here's an, obs- you know, an opaque process by which we pick these people. You know, it's normal American politics, right? Yeah. I to think that it's incredibly corrupt, <laughs> right? So, but again, cannabis, I think, is a safer uh, product, right? If, if your cannabis isn't, you know, isn't rotten, it's not, it doesn't have some fungus on it that's going to kill you. And it's just cannabis. It's. You know, unless you're a person who's addicted to to weed, which I think is is a more common thing than a lot of us appreciate it. We'll, we'll be finding out more of, about soon. But if you're not that kind of person, then a little weed here and there, eh, whatever, it's fine.
0: I don't know a lot about regulation, but I understand it, it's created some big monopolies. Recently did a piece in July about an importer yeah. that yeah. was, yeah, could you tell us well, about Austin that case? Gut- that-
1: well, Austin Guthrie. Uh, was Susan Ash's friend, you know, 10 years ago or so. And he got her to start the AKA, and he told her to hire Mac Haddo. And so he's one of the founding figures in the Kratom community, as it's known now, right? He was a Kratom importer and seller. And uh, and he's also like a lot of people who get involved in these kinds of businesses. He's a kind of a quick buck artist. He's the kind of guy who wants multiple exotic cars, always working an angle, you know, an archetype American character. So the industry likes to tell people that it's moved past guys like this, and it's maturing, and we're formalizing everything. And that's one of Haddo's main themes. Um, I don't think it's true, having researched several of these companies and having interviewed the guy in charge of MIT, uh, MIT 45. So he got busted for on the import ban and essentially for moving money around. Um, and I think they found a company he founded – guilty of money laundering but not him so and he i think he got popped by accident um so customs and irs criminal investigators got a tip of some sort uh or they noticed money flows you know whenever you move money around real money not fake money like you know crypto or anything but when you move money around you get in in large amounts there's a uh there's paperwork generated and some of these are they're, they're called uh SAR, suspicious activity reports, and these are highly secret. You never get to see these unless you're an investigative, federal investigator with a clearance. But they get forwarded to IRS regularly, and the IRS guys basically they're looking at they're seeing this money getting moved around. He's a young guy with a flashy lifestyle and no real legitimate <laughs> businesses, and so they figured he was a drug dealer. You know, they figured he you know another kind of drug dealer, and so they followed the money, and you know what it's like that line from from the wire. You know, if you follow drugs, you get drug dealers. And if you follow the money, you don't know what you're going to get. And they followed this money and they got the different kind of drug dealer. And nobody on the prosecution side was perfectly familiar with the intricacies of the laws regarding Kratom importation. And so, like I say, that it's not really quite a ban. It's something close to a ban. But there's a loophole. If your company's bringing in for for other stuff, you can do it. And it turns out Kratom gets gets brought into the country under this loophole where it's not for human consumption all the time, according to uh, shipping trackers that, that document imports uh, by uh, analyzing the publicly available bills of lading. Guthrie was facing felony charges for money laundering and all kinds of stuff. And his lawyer said, hey, we need to have discovery. We need to, to see all of the information the government has on Kratom importation." All right. Knowing that they, that they had this information available publicly anyway. And the government said, well, we can't get you that stuff. It's, you know, too much paperwork. We can't do it in time for this, for this trial. You know, so they said, we need that documentation. What was seized? What was not the prosecutor said they couldn't do it. And the government basically went in with a, a very generous plea deal right after that and said to, to Sebastian Guthrie, you can keep all your money and we're going to offer you a short Short time in jail or whatever it was. So
0: that's how that And he's, li- and he's living abroad anyway.
1: Well, you, he, he is, but he was, he was here for, he made his trial,
0: you know, he, okay. he was okay. here
1: to have, and he's not fleeing or anything like that. He's not a fugitive. He's not. Okay. And I haven't spoken to him. I spoke to his lawyer for the story. It was Byzantine, the way the law works. And, it, and the law happened to turn on a, on a, uh, an appellant court decision in that district. This is why you hire lawyers for stuff like this who really know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and the people who are prosecuting him, they don't do creative cases. They do, you know, real drug cases. They do, they do fentanyl cases. It's a whole different body of law in some ways. And so they, they, they just basically said, all right, fine. This is a small fish. We're not going to worry too much about him. I think, and so FDA has been back and, and talking about cracking down more and maybe they'll get some resources for that. But my sense of it is,
0: man, we'll see. The other policy solution, and this is the one that's kind of proposed by the AKA, is sort of self-regulation of the industry, where the, the, the American Kratom Association kind of certifies these vendors as being reputable and having clean lab tested Kratom. Did you reporting or do you have any know anything about the like the Kratom Association's gold certification process and
1: That's a black box to me you know i'm told and ryan nedell told me this everything is on his supply chain is is certified and all this stuff but he also told me he does not import kratom himself he buys it from you know second third party vendors one of the most important and hidden aspects of of, of this whole thing is that kratom retailers are regularly selling this product without their corporate clothes on Okay. They use fictitious names. They use unregistered LLCs. They have layers of consignees. It's just a shady distribution system so that they can hide from the lawyers and the regulators. And that kind of corporate chicanery uh, could be stopped pretty easily. A few tweaks of the laws in most states, right? A little more funding for your secretary of state and you give them the authority to go after, you know, bogus companies. You, 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 and attorneys general, you basically say here, this is a priority now. You know, if you find a company that's not registered, you, you got to go assume that that's something's wrong there and, and, and go after them. There's no enforcement right now per se on people who do business without registering their companies. And it's perfectly legal in many states to establish a company without a real address and without using your own name. And so this is basically the way to make fraud happen. You know, if you're the kind of person who wants to do this sort of thing, it, 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 the United States is a beautiful place to do it. It's, and so, you know, that's just in general. Now the Kratom industry is consolidating and it's turning towards ever more concentrated products, more and more of these shots and stuff like that. It's very clear that the big money is going to be with the heaviest users. Um, just as it is with gambling and alcohol, you know, a lot of things are like that. So if you're, if you're a person who uses Kratom in moderation, you have to understand that that, that's how that's where the industry is moving. It's going to be harder and harder to get small doses of pure leaf and stuff in and and for for anything. So I think the race is on now between guys like Nadell of mit 45 and the biopharmaceutical startups. They're 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 leaving the FDA in the dust and the only way the government gets a handle on this is if some big name athlete dies from kratom. You know, the way uh the Orioles pitcher Steve Belcher did from ephedra uh, in 2003. It's it's one of those things that's you're kind of waiting for the bomb to go off that's kind of the way I see it right now.
0: Anything else that you'd like to address that we haven't talked about earlier? No, not really we We went on a little bit longer than I thought. Thanks for joining us.